Lord, we do pray that you will speak to us now. Speak to us through your word. They are a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. They are beautiful words, life-giving words found in your scripture. And that's why we're here this morning, Father, to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I sort of answered the question already that I was going to ask, but after that song, I couldn't help but answer it. What exactly are we doing here this morning? Why do we get up every Sunday morning, get dressed up, come to church, sit down in the pews, and stare up at a platform where there's someone behind the podium who wants to speak to us for 30 minutes or so? Most of you know me well enough that I don't uh, have some particular human wisdom to impart to you that's going to that's going to change your life, not something out of my own brain, certainly. Um, And if you didn't know that, thank you for visiting with us today. (laughs) Got a flap or something you can tear off. Um, But seriously, the reason we go to the effort every Sunday morning to get up and to come to this place is because we expect to hear from God in the words of the Bible. And that is the only thing worthy that I have to share with you this morning. Thankfully, we are sitting in a church that recognizes the importance of the Bible. Thankfully, we are a part of a denomination that has fought vigorously for the authority of Scripture and the preaching of Scripture in its churches every Sunday. But unfortunately, in churches around the world, this is becoming less and less true. Churches who used to teach the Bible and love the Bible have lost their way. And sadly, many congregations have become confused, maybe even misled regarding the purpose of this sacred time that we have together on Sunday mornings. And I say misled because a congregation, a church is only going to develop an appetite for what it is being fed. And what so many congregations are sadly being fed each week is what the apostles Peter and Paul and the writer to the Hebrews refer to as milk or baby food. And what the Bible tells us is that we need solid food. We need meat. And we know and we sang this morning, oftentimes the Bible refers or the Bible refers to itself, the Word of God refers to itself as being spiritual food necessary for the healthy growth and maturation of a Christian. But many churches have listened to the church strategists who say, Oh, if you preach the Word of God, if you preach the Bible, they will get bored because it is no longer relevant to where they are. And to that I say baloney. There is no more book more relevant to where we are at than what we find in the Bible. But nonetheless, so many churches have listened to the experts who have told them to keep it short, who have told them to keep the congregations laughing and having a good time so that they will come back next week. 
And the result is that we have people in our churches, our churches are filled with people, even with Christians who no longer have an appetite for the scriptures. And undoubtedly, many churches have packed the pews in the process, but there is a big difference between growing a religious organization and growing a church. A church is made up of people whose lives have been radically changed by the Holy Spirit and who therefore long for God's word. But thankfully, I know that what we want to be here is we want to be a church. We want to continue to be a place where the word of God is rightly taught. We want to be a church that has an effect on our neighbors and on the world around us. We want to be a church who turns the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And in our passage this morning, we will look at the story of two men who were turning their world upside down. And and looking at this passage, we will see what we can learn from these two men about how they were doing that. So let's turn now to Acts 17, where we'll be looking at verses 1 to 15. Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. And if you remember last time that I preached, I uh, covered the story at the beginning of Acts 16 about Paul, Silas, and Timothy uh, making this providentially guided trip to Philippi where they encountered a woman named Lydia down by the river. And I can't hardly say that without thinking of the Chris Farley skit in a van down by the river. Um, But they met this woman named Lydia down by the river. They encountered her and they spoke Uh, the Bible to her, they spoke the words of God to her, and she believed. And then a a couple of weeks later, uh, Chris, Jones, not Farley, Chris picked up where I left off, and he covered the rest of Acts 16, which was the story of Paul and Silas being thrown into prison and encountering this Philippian jailer, and through this miracle, uh, they were able to lead him to know the truth about Jesus Christ, and he and his family were baptized. So to get our bearings this morning... Look with me at the last verse in chapter 16 to see where we left off and where we will begin today. You see there, verse 40 of chapter 16. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so this is where our story begins, with Paul and Silas having said their goodbyes to Lydia and to the rest of this new church established in Philippi, and now they are continuing their mission on into the city of Thessalonica. So follow along with me as I read Acts 17, verses 1 to 3. Now when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So beginning in verse 1, we see that after departing of the town of Philippi and the church there, they make a three-day journey to the city of Thessalonica, And they stop in these two smaller cities of Amphibolus and Apollonia along the way on the road to Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica was a major city. It was the second largest city in uh, Greece at the time with a population of 200,000 people, which was a gigantic city in the first century. Um, And so this place, Thessalonica, is an ideal city for Paul and Silas to continue their missionary work that they have started out on. 
And we see in verses 1 and 2 something that uh, we've talked about before, that Paul and Silas had a custom of beginning their missionary work in a synagogue in the, in the new towns that they would arrive in. And he would normally be invited to share in those synagogues. And, and we see that this happened on three consecutive Sabbath days in the city of Thessalonica. And now in the second part of verse 2 and into verse 3, Luke gives us a glimpse of the pattern of Paul's preaching while he is in the synagogue. And this is what I want to pay careful attention to this morning. So look with me as I begin in the middle of verse 2 and read into verse 3. This is where, really where I want to focus this morning. It says, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die. And so the first thing we notice is that Paul said he reasoned with them, or Luke said about Paul that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And the way that he reasoned with them from the scriptures is he opened up the Old Testament scriptures and explained and proved that Jesus was the Messiah and that he must suffer and that he must die and that he must be raised from the dead. He likely moved from one prophecy to the next, showing what the scripture said about the promised Old Testament Messiah or the Christ as it was uh, translated into Greek. Now, why did he begin this way? Why did he begin by showing what the Old Testament scriptures said about the Messiah, the one whom the Jews were waiting on? Well, because one of the biggest obstacles that a Jew would have, man or woman, was to expect him or her to believe that the Messiah whom they had been waiting on, the one who was coming to free them uh, from their bondage, would be killed in a scandalous way such as the cross, they could not accept this. They could not believe it. They did not believe their Messiah, the one who came to rescue and deliver them, would only come to die and seemingly fall short of the mission that he had come to do. And so once Paul made his case for this from the Scriptures, once he proved that they said these things, that the Scriptures said these things about the Messiah, he goes on to say at the end of verse 3, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ or is the Messiah. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, I know the man who fits the bill perfectly. I know him because he knocked me off my horse on my trip to Damascus and I was blind for three days. And after I recovered my sight, I have been on the run ever since because I cannot stop telling about this good news. He says to the men and women of Thessalonica, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all these hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. He is your Messiah. He is your King. Submit yourself to him today. And as I said, I want to focus on this section this morning on particularly what Paul relied upon to make his case for this. He didn't use clever stories. He didn't rely on his charismatic personality. He didn't get out his book of jokes and tell the joke that would most open them up to hear what he had to say. No, instead he opened up the scriptures for them and he set along the scriptures and these prophecies, the events that occurred in the life of Jesus and then pointed and said, Jesus is your Messiah. He didn't dim the lights and cue the music. He didn't tell them a sappy story to get them in a weak and easily manipulated emotional state. He didn't appeal 
to their emotions. He appealed to their intellects. He trusted in the power of the God-breathed scriptures and, he, and the Holy Spirit to do their work in the minds of these individuals. He brought forward the evidence that Jesus, in his ministry, in his life, and in his death, fulfilled all the prophecies about the coming Messiah. He engaged their minds and called on them to believe what he was saying, namely that Jesus is your Messiah. And then he called upon them to believe that Jesus went to the cross and died to save those who would believe these things about him. And so that is the answer to what we are to be doing here on Sunday mornings. This is why we come. We come to open our Bibles and say, speak, O Lord. We don't come to hear what Jimmy has to say. We don't come to hear what Lynn has to say. We don't come to hear what Chris has to say. We don't come to hear what any person in this pulpit has to say. We come to hear what God has to say to us right in the Bible. That is where the power is found to change life. That is where the Holy Spirit works in and through the scriptures. That is how God speaks to us. And nothing, brothers and sisters, can speak to us more clearly and more relevantly to where we are at than the words contained in the Bible. If you want to know God, if you want to hear from God... Don't spend your time staring up at the sky asking God to speak to you while you ignore the five copies of the Bible that you have in your house. If you want to hear God speak to you, open your Bible and read it. It is the word of God. It is powerful. It is powerful to change. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy knew the scriptures had power to change because they had previously seen what had happened when they preached the words of God in other places. And now look at what happens as a result of this story and of Paul explaining and proving these things about Jesus from the scriptures. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Let me read them to us. And some of them were persuaded that persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the result of Paul's preaching we see here, it was twofold. First, we see the positive result in verse 4. Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas in this new community of believers in the city of Thessalonica. Those who believed included both the number of Jews and a number of Greeks who were worshiping with the Jews at the synagogue and many prominent Greek women in the city. So the positive response to Paul's preaching is that some believed. But there was also a negative response, wasn't there? We see this in verse 5. The Jews, meaning those Jews who did not believe, did not just take it in stride that some of their fellow worshipers believed and now had joined themselves with Paul in this, in this new church in the city. No, they were stirred to envy and to anger. And so they proceeded to do what all rational people proceed to do. They started a citywide riot and stormed the house of a man named Jason and sought to drag him out to the crowds. Actually, they were seeking to drag Paul and Silas out to the crowds. Um, but as we'll see, uh, 
Paul and Silas were not there, so they drug Jason and his friends out to the crowds. The intent was to turn them over to the civil authorities, or worse yet, turn them over to the mob who would have likely killed them. And when we speak about Jesus to others, we can expect similar results. Sometimes people will believe, and sometimes they will not believe. And sometimes those who don't believe will act hostily towards us. Hopefully not like this, but let's look at just how hostily they can act. Let's look at what happened after the mob arrived at Jason's house in the first part of verse 6. And when they could not find them, when they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, some of the other Christians there, before the city authorities. Now think about this for a minute. Uh, Jason was most likely one of the Jews who believed at Paul's preaching in the synagogue earlier on. Uh, We know this because Jason is often a name, it's a Greek name that was often taken by Jewish people who were originally named Joshua. And so Jason was likely a brand new disciple of Christ. He had probably was already now alienated from his family and from his friends because of his profession of faith. And now he is immediately thrown into this terrible firestorm, being drugged out of his house uh, by these people seeking to do him harm. And those scenes like this are very unfamiliar in our world today, at least in our country. Today they are not unfamiliar around the world. Somewhere in the world today, something like this will take place, probably many times. And hopefully, a new believer being violently dragged out of his or her home will have the, uh, the fortune to be turned over to the city authorities instead of left to the mob who will likely tear them apart or stone them to death. And we must ask ourselves, how long will we continue to enjoy the freedom in this country to continue to practice our religion without fear? And perhaps a more important question for us to ask ourselves is how would we respond if we were in this situation, would you still be able to say Jesus is Lord if your life was on the line? Would you still be able to say Jesus is Lord if the life of one of your family members was on the line? Friends, these decisions are, Christi- are decisions that Christians around the world have had to make for centuries, and some of them will make that decision today. So thank God we are living in a place and in a time uh, where we're safe from this type of violence. But let's please not waste this freedom on trivial things. We will all have to give an account one day for how we used our time and how we used our resources. Let's please not waste them. But the story continues. Notice what the mob was shouting as they dragged Jason before the city authorities. Uh, Pick up with me again in the middle of verse 6, and you see that they were shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Oh, friends, that the world would say this about us, that the world would say, these men and women in this church who have turned the world upside down, that the world would say that about us. Chris spoke a few weeks ago about our ambitions versus God's ambitions. And I don't know about you, but I would love to be known as someone who turned the world 
upside down. When I breathe my last breath, I want to know that I have made an impact. I want to make a name, but not a name for myself. I want to make a name for Jesus Christ. Because I know that is how we will turn the world upside down. If we want to turn the world upside down, we must be committed to preaching the gospel the way Paul preached it. The world is turned upside down by the faithful proclaiming of the gospel. So we must be committed to learning the scriptures and being able to open them for our friends and neighbors the way that Paul did. That is how you turn the world upside down. And friends, that is what we are called to do. But when we do so, we must be prepared to face Resistance. We must be prepared to be falsely accused and falsely charged. And just look here in verse 7 how Jason was charged. And Jason received them. He received Paul and Silas. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar. This is the accusation. They were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, do you recognize this tactic? hasn't really changed that much, had it? This is basically the same charge that was put forward against Jesus, that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews and therefore placing himself in competition and opposition to Caesar. This was a charge of rebellion, it was a charge of sedition, and it was a very serious and dangerous charge. Jesus was killed for this exact reason. Yes, it is Paul and Silas who have turned the world upside down, but the accusation is that they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar's. All the Christians in this new church were acting against the decrees of Caesar because they were saying there is another king, Jesus. And this is no small accusation. The city officials knew that they could not ignore it, and more importantly, the Jews who were angry knew that the city officials could not ignore it. So look with me at verses 8 and 9 to see how the officials handle the situation. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And now I think the issue here really is very similar to what Pilate was facing with Jesus. He didn't believe the accusations against Jesus. Remember, Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. He wanted to free him, but for political reasons, he had to satisfy the mob. He could not afford the riot to get out of hand, and his career threatened, and I think the same thing was probably true about these city officials. They were disturbed because they were afraid things were going to get out of hand, not because they believed that these people were actually rebelling against Caesar. So in verse 9, we see that the city officials did something pretty reasonable. They took a security deposit from Jason and the others as assurance that they would not let Paul and Silas disturb the city any further. And then they let them go. So I don't think the intent was really to punish anyone, but it was, it was to maintain peace and order within the city. I don't think they really believed the charges. I just think they wanted to maintain order. But as we'll see... This all but ended the missionary efforts of Paul in the city of Thessalonica because we see in the next verse that Paul and Silas decide it's time to move on. It was basically the only choice they had unless they wanted to cause real legal trouble uh, for Jason and the others there. So look with me in verse 10. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, the beautiful thing to me about this verse is that Paul gets into this next city, and he does the exact same thing. He goes right back into the synagogue and goes about business as usual. We see that this was a custom that Paul had when he would go to a city, and it didn't matter how much trouble he was going to get in, he would go to the synagogue. And I just love that. He gets thrown out of city after city, and yet he continues to go about business as usual. Now, probably many of you are familiar with the, um, well, maybe now the former LSU football player named the Honey Badger, that he got this name for his relentless playing style. Well, I think that Paul is the original Honey Badger. And in my opinion, Paul is the honey badger of the New Testament. And I say this because every time he goes into one of these towns, particularly the ones with a synagogue, and he starts preaching the gospel, he either gets beat up or stoned or thrown into prison. And then what does he do? He goes out and he comes either right back into the same city or he goes to another city and just rinses and repeats. He does the same thing over and over again. He is persistent. He is relentless. He is a man on a mission for God, and he will not be distracted or diverted. He has a fire in his bones to preach the gospel, and he cannot contain it. He fulfills well the words of Jesus in Acts 9, 16, who said that Paul would suffer much for the sake of my name. So we should not be surprised that Paul When he arrives in this new town of Berea, he walks straight into the synagogue and he goes about business as usual, opening the scriptures, explaining the scriptures, and proving that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting on. And so I said earlier that one of the main things that I want to highlight in this passage is Paul's dependence upon and his confidence in the scriptures to do their saving work. And I hope I have made that point. But that's not the only point I want to make. I also want us to see that this confidence and this dependence and this trust in the Scriptures is not something that should be seen only in those who preach the Scriptures, but is a character trait to be seen in those who listen to the Scriptures preached as well. The best example of this in the Bible probably comes in these next two verses. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. They read, now these Jews were more noble or more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so we see here that because they were more open-minded, that these people, these Jews received Paul's teaching eagerly but they did not accept it blindly no they took the words of Paul and compared them with scripture to see if the things that Paul was saying were true they examined scripture carefully to confirm that Paul was speaking accurately and truthfully to them this was not something that they were just doing on the Sabbath like in Thessalonica. We see in verse 11, they were so eager to, that they were meeting with Paul on a daily basis to do these things. These are people hungry for truth and hungry for the word of God. And brothers and sisters, when these two things meet, faithful teaching of the scripture and diligent study by the congregation, you have all the ingredients necessary to turn the world upside down. The scriptures aren't meant 
friends, to be read and studied and understood only by pastors and teachers. This passage shows us that the opposite is true of that. The scriptures are meant to be read and understood and interpreted and applied by the broader church. So I urge you, please make Bible reading and study and memorization a part of your daily activities. Friends, the words of God are powerful. With words, he spoke the world into existence. With words, he spoke life into the human race. With words, he will speak spiritual life into each of us personally through the power of the Holy Spirit working in tandem with his inscripturated word. We sang it this morning. The Bible is more valuable than gold. And yet we often treat it like a boring old book that has nothing to offer us. Sadly, there are even churches who treat it this way. And sometimes they are large and they are fast-growing churches. And they are teaching a generation of people that the Bible has nothing relevant to say to them. You cast aside the Bible in order to grow a religious organization and not a church. A church is a place where the word of God is rightly taught. Let us continue to be a church. But as we saw earlier, the preaching of the word of God does not guarantee that people will believe. Not even when they listen eagerly and study intently like they did in Berea. We see in this passage the same twofold response to Paul's teaching and preaching, don't we? First, many believed, but then some did not believe. And sadly, this is always the case when the gospel is proclaimed. But we must remember that our job is to proclaim the gospel, not to get people to believe. We leave that up to the Holy Spirit and we trust in him for that. Now, as we would expect... Trouble continues to follow Paul wherever he goes. He can't outrun it. The fact is that some people who are going to turn the world upside down are going to upset people in the process. And look with me now at verses 13 to 15. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating And stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So once again, Paul is on the run. The Jews in Thessalonica are not happy about the success of Paul's ministry and they leave Thessalonica and travel all the way to Berea to run him out from there too. And they adopt the very same tactics. They stir up and they agitate a crowd in an effort to drag Paul before the city authorities. Uh, But this time Paul is immediately whisked away and later joined by Silas and Timothy in Athens. And I wish we had time uh, to look at the story in uh, Athens this morning, but we don't have time for that uh, today. You would throw stuff at me. Um, But to conclude, I just want to ask one question. When I hold up the Bible and say, this is the word of God, what comes into your mind? 
Is it just one of those church phrases that we have said so many times that it no longer really communicates to us that this is an important book and an important part of our life? Friends, this is the Word of God. And if we are going to be a church, a church that would turn its world upside down, we must remain committed to the Scriptures. We are powerless without the scriptures. We have no authority apart from it, and we must remain committed to what Baptists have always been committed to, and that is the truth that the Bible is the Word of God, and it is powerful in our lives, and it is powerful to change the lives of others. All the mighty men and women of faith in the church have believed this about the Bible, and we would do well to remain in that lineage of people. So I urge you this morning to reevaluate yourself with regard to the Bible. Do you allow it to guide your life? Is it a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? How are you hearing from God if you're not hearing from him in the scriptures? Lift your prayers up to God and hear from him through the scriptures, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, parents... Are your kids spending as much time learning the Bible as they are learning math and history? And if not, what are you communicating to them about the Bible? And young people, do you know the Bible as well as you know the songs on your iPod? And hey, I'm with you because I don't. If I knew the Bible as well as I knew the songs of my iPod, I'd probably have the whole Bible memorized. And the same is probably true for many of you. But I beg you to take the Bible seriously. And grandparents, are you pestering your children enough about them pestering their children, your grandchildren, about this? And I want you to know I checked with God, and he said it would be okay for you to pester them just about this one thing. But seriously, you have so much to offer this younger generation. Make sure you're leaving a legacy that counts for eternity. Develop in your family and in your church family a love and a longing for the scriptures. Model it for us. Pass it on to us. We need your example. Friends, we hold the word of God in our hands this morning. And it contains everything we need to know to turn the world upside down. The question is, will we open it, read it, commit ourselves to it? Or will we be deceived that it's just an out-of-date book, no longer relevant in our highly advanced society? The decision is ours. May God help us choose the right way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have recorded it in writing and that it has been the foundation of the church for so many years. We thank you that it reveals to us Jesus Christ. 
and that it shows us all that we need to know to be saved. And Father, I pray that you will put a desire in us that we cannot control to learn and to read and to proclaim your scriptures. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.